Hello, everyone. This is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company focused on the ethical, safe, and efficient conduct of clinical trials. Today, we are speaking with Lisa Deck, a patient advocate and stroke survivor, about her experience as a young stroke survivor, her diagnostic odyssey, the medical solution that has transformed her life, and building advocacy initiatives that help others. Lisa is a graduate of American University and a past national spokesperson of the National Heart Association, a co-founder of an advocacy group called Stroke Survivors Empowering Each Other, and is the host of an online talk show on patient advocacy co-produced with Rare New England, a patient advocacy group, and on the advisory committee of the nonprofit Rare Disease Legislative Advocates. Lisa Deck is married and the mother of two young children. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you. Uh, You experienced three strokes at a young age. Many people think of strokes as something that happens to much older people. Tell us about what you were doing in life when you had your first stroke and what happened. Sure. Um, I had my first stroke at 21 years old. I was about to graduate from college. It was approximately a week before college graduation um, in Washington, D.C., and I had all the signs and symptoms of a stroke, but did not recognize that stroke could happen to young people or young women. Um, My left side was numb. I had a severe headache. I had some confusion. Um, I also had some numbness on my face just on one side, and the first hospital I went to sent me home, but the second hospital did indeed diagnose me with a stroke. I was so shocked that that could happen to somebody who, in all other capacities, was relatively healthy. Um, But at that point, the doctors, you know, started some treatment. Um, I was able to get out of the hospital for graduation. I don't remember most of it. Um, I hobbled across the stage, and I had earplugs because noises were too loud, but I did indeed graduate. And about six months later, I had started my first job in consulting, had gone through training for six weeks, and I had the same symptoms again. And I called my doctor and told him, my neurologist at Georgetown, and he told me I needed to come to the hospital immediately. And I laughed because it was, you know, my first day on the client site, and I told him I couldn't. And he firmly told me I needed to. Um, And it was then I learned I had a second stroke. The doctors kept me in the hospital for a couple weeks at this point to try to determine what was causing these strokes. And what they determined at the time was a rare, well, not really a rare, I mean, it wasn't very common, but it's a disease called vasculitis of the central nervous system. And they decided to start treating me for that. During the treatment for that disease, I had a third stroke. So... Along the way, are you having some, was there some misdiagnosis? Um, I know the treatments um, you you had were invasive, weren't they? And there were some, therefore, missed opportunities to get the right treatment. And, yes. of course, as we all know and are acutely aware that stroke damage can be irre- irreparable at times. So tell us about this diagnostic odyssey and um, what, what happened with that and um, what treatments did you have? And, How did that merge with your life that you were trying to lead? Yeah, sure. Um, So after my second stroke is when the doctors diagnosed me with the vasculitis, and they called it a full-court press, talking about basketball, but they said, we're going to need to attack this on all fronts because you're so young, and we want you to try to, you know, they wanted to give me life and let me live without more strokes. 
So my treatment included chemotherapy, prednisone, and blood thinners. And I was on these treatments for the better part of three years. Um, and these treatments, while ultimately saving my life, they were quite debilitating. Um, the side effects were huge. There was fatigue, and there was nausea, and there was weight gain, and then there was weight loss. And I went into menopause, and I had um, high blood pressure and high cholesterol, like all of these things while trying to save my life were really debilitating to my body. Um, at the time, too, I was in my early 20s and a bit um, stubborn, and I decided I wanted to stay in Washington, D.C., even though my family and my parents, who were my primary caregivers, lived in Rhode Island. And I was still working. I was still working out. Um, I was trying to be a normal 20-something, and I was anything but. Um, after the third stroke, I did indeed move home because the doctors took me out of work and placed me on disability. And at that point, we start, I started getting involved in advocacy. Um, it wasn't until much later in 2015, so this is now 18 years post my first stroke, I was serving as a national spokesperson for the American Heart Association. And my message was always that you needed to take action and you needed to um, speak up for yourself if you're having symptoms. And I was having symptoms. My left side was numb, which would happen over the course of the years. And I was still shocked when I went into the hospital and I had been diagnosed with a fourth stroke. At this point, the doctors said, let's investigate this a little bit more. I was terrified. I had two young children now. I was a mom and a wife. And the doctor said, let's, let's take a look because, you know, if this is vasculitis, again, we need to figure out exactly what to do. And fortunately, I was at a hospital where the neurointerventional radiologist who was doing my scan had done his residency at the Stanford Moya Moya Center. So as he looked at my scans, he said, this is not vasculitis. You have Moya Moya disease. The bad news is there is no cure for Moya Moya disease. The good news is there is a treatment. So five years ago in 2015, after my fourth stroke, I would go about enduring two brain surgeries to repair and increase the blood flow in my brain. I had these surgeries one week apart on the other coast of the United States. I flew to Stanford Hospital where the neurosurgeon was an expert and that's what we wanted to do. And on each side of my brain, I had a direct and indirect bypass. Um, happen. And while this was excellent and successful, it was not without its side effects as well. So I had nausea, I had pain, I had some speech issues, which was expected, but still very terrifying. And I look back and I wouldn't change a thing because my life is my life and my family is my family. And, you know, I am doing okay today, but ultimately there's 18 years that probably could have been avoided, and a lot of that treatment could have been avoided had the you know technology and expertise have been there 20 years ago when I first had my first stroke. Um, how does meeting other people help? You um, you have founded advocacy groups and you connected with advocacy groups, and that's important in lots of diseases. How does that help? Um, it helps tremendously. I think peer support is huge. And when I was in my early 20s, I didn't have any. They, the medical professionals told me about support group 
for young stroke survivors. And I went to one, and I was 20, maybe four at the time, and the youngest person in the room was 60, because young stroke survivors at the time were in their 60s, and there's a big difference between 20 and 60. And I felt alone. There wasn't a lot of you know, I had friends and family who were very supportive, but I didn't have anyone who really knew what it was like to go through that. So I became involved with the American Heart Association, and in their advocacy office as a part-time volunteer, I started talking about getting patients involved in advocacy. And quite honestly, it was a bit selfish of me because I wanted to find other young people even if they hadn't had a stroke or a chronic illness, but had gone through something so that I could have somebody to talk to. And in doing that, um, fortunately, I was able to um, kind of convince the the powers that be to get some survivors and caregivers involved in advocacy. And I started a survivor luncheon um, in Washington during the federal lobby day. And it was great. It started with, I think, 40 the first year, and it eventually grew to over 200. Um, And that was just really neat to be able to have a room full of people who understood what you were going through. Um, I also became involved in Chicago, um, starting a group called Stroke Survivors Empowering Each Other. Still in existence today, I um, no longer have much to do with it, but the goal was to create an organization for peer support, for, you know, helping each other through this. And I think nowadays, this is all very common. People, you know, Peer support is is there, and talking to people who have been through it is there. But over the past 20 years, I've really had to search that out myself to try to find people who knew what it was like to go through what I go through. You've been in clinical studies, too. Um, What were those about? So, interestingly enough, I'm not sure in my early 20s if I was in clinical studies. I'm guessing I was because... Georgetown is a teaching hospital, and I signed a lot of documents. And at the time, I was very open to anything people were asking me. Um, But I do know um, when I was at Stanford, I was part of um, research studies and trials at the hospital for Moya Moya disease. And most of that was not really to help myself. It's really to help the people that come behind me because they're studying what happens with all of us current patients so that they can better their science, better the treatment, better the medications or the surgeries. But in doing that, it really allows patients who come behind us to have an advantage. And I think I wish that I didn't have to, I wish I hadn't gone through that long diagnostic odyssey. And perhaps by being part of these trials, that will help others to not have to go through that. Um, And mostly it was at the hospital for me. It was, you know, they explained to me different things that they were trying to track and study. And, you know, I had some questionnaires to fill out, but it was very easy. And at this point, I was an experienced advocate. So I recognized what was going on. And I knew the importance of clinical trials and research studies because, 20 years ago, they didn't know what was going on with me, but now they do. And that's because of these studies and trials. So I'm a big proponent of um, patients being involved because I think that it it truly can help shape the future of what's going to be happening. Such a diagnostic odyssey that you went through and the the life change, both of those things, the fact that you've been, you realized you were misdiagnosed and the fact that you realized... um, there was some time spent when you didn't have the right treatment, and that treatment was not very easy on you. Uh, how does that impact a person? You know, it's interesting because the day that they told me it was Moya Moya disease, 
I of course was shocked and it 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 was it was very much a miss you know, it, it felt like my sense of self was missed and I didn't know kind of who I suddenly was because who was I if I hadn't gone through all that treatment and I hadn't, you know, endured all those hardships just to overcome it. And that felt funny and that was a hard thing to do. However, I also know that, again, my life, I, I believe that things happen for a reason and that sounds cheesy, but I really do think that this was meant to be my path. And I could be really angry and frustrated that my early 20s were marked as it was and that I no longer work. And that is very frustrating to me some days. Yet I have been very fortunate to be blessed with so many volunteer opportunities and a loving husband and great children. So while I could look back in anger, I don't choose to do that because it doesn't do me any good. Um, there are some people around me who, you know, at one point said, should should we look at this more? And again, I think you can't go backwards. We can only go forward. And I am very blessed to be where I am. And the organizations that I founded and been a part of or on a board for, all of them are helping people. So while I don't have a full-time job that I go to and, and make an impact on the world, I am lucky enough to be able to help others, and, you know, that feels good. So that, that's how I choose to look at it. What advice would you have for others going through what you went through as, as um, patients? Oh, that's a great question, and I think... I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first, you can do it. I think people, you don't know how strong you are until you have to go through it. So you need to stay positive. You need to, you know, talk to yourself positively. Yet, you also can give yourself permission to be sad when you're sad. So that's kind of the emotional piece, that you are strong enough to handle whatever is thrown at you, but you are also okay to be sad. Um, I think about the... Um, actual facts is if you're having symptoms, a health symptom of any kind that you know, you know your body, and if it feels funny or something feels different, take action. You know, you never want to regret what you didn't do. Um, you'd rather go to the hospital and them tell you everything's fine than not go and have some major issues. And in stroke, that's a really big factor because time matters. So I encourage people to take action. And finally, as a patient advocate, my advice to others is to advocate for yourself. Nobody else is looking out for you as much as you are. And sometimes it feels funny or you might not feel like you're that outspoken. But if you need something or you want to tell somebody something, you should have the confidence to do that because ultimately that's your job. And I look back when I was in my early 20s. I didn't know to advocate for myself. I was young, I was naive, and it wasn't until I was a patient just recently that I learned the power that I have and the ability that I am able to bring to a room to be the patient expert and to be an advocate for myself. We're hearing that on this um, on this podcast series, we are hearing that from a number of advocates who had been misdiagnosed and had even been told there probably is nothing that we can do for you and who persisted and actually got the treatment approach changed, saving their lives. And it sounds like you yourself have also experienced that difference between what doctors may conclude and what is it is the conclusion later after things get better. So um, 
it's a good thing that you're out there using your voice and sharing that message with other people. Lisa, it's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thank you for bringing that message to us and everybody who hears it. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. We have been speaking today with Lisa Deck, a three-time stroke survivor and patient advocate. This is Steve Smith from WCG Patient Radio. Special thanks to executive producer Lauren Osmore and production staff Isabel Andresen, Roxana Guilford-Blake, technical director David Fogel, and head of studio Amy Hutnick. Goodbye, everybody.